You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. It doesn't seem real that people can believe this bullshit. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 8. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. Today, we're discussing the mysterious copper culture in Michigan. We're going to examine how over a billion pounds of copper can vanish, where it all went, if it was fueling the Bronze Age over in Europe, if the Myonians were involved, if it was the Vikings, or maybe it was somebody a little closer to home. Stay tuned, and be ready to think critically. Rage of trials as one will call, no we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I'm here with my co-host, Ken. How you doing? Great, Sarah. How you doing? It's just us today, huh? It is. All those interviews and that people will hear later on, and it's just exactly. us today. They'll just have to live with it. I guess, huh? So today we're going to be talking about what is called the copper culture. Um, I like to refer to it as the copper culture myth because it's not... When we say copper culture, we're not actually referring to... Um, an actual archaeological field of study, even though there are archaeologists who do study um, Michigan copper artifacts and right. the prehistoric cultures that mined those copper fields. Because there's a lot of copper uh, in Michigan and Wisconsin and all of that. And, you know, Sarah, maybe we really should start with that for folks who are not familiar. You know, most people hear about North American prehistoric archaeology and they think, well, they were a Stone Age people. Yes. And they recognize they've got clay but it's but because the copper is kind of of restricted geographically, that in a lot of the country people are not aware of the fact that there was in fact a a a, a, a use of metal by Native Americans before Columbus. Yeah, and it was it was a massive uh, industry industry for them. Um, there are tons of of copper artifacts that have been found in the area. Um, and as trade goods coming out of the area. So we're, we're talking about the upper Midwest, Michigan. Yes. And that, that general area. And the upper UP there. Uh, there's also an right. island. And and people may be familiar with uh, the area, one of the areas because of uh, American Unearthed. Um, I think the title of the episode was The Great Copper Heist. Right. And we'll get into what they were talking about right, exactly, later. Right. But first, I do think that we should have a little bit more of a review that it was not unknown for prehistoric peoples to use metals, um, not only for uh, adornment, but also there are lots of projectile points that were made out of beaten copper. Um, were they smelting? Could they smelt or were they just um, using? These were, to the best of my knowledge, all of the copper found in pre-Columbian and native uh, North American contexts was not smelted, but it was the it was the use of what's called native copper, which is copper that that is found in the wild as raw, pure, ninety nine point and so many nine percent pure copper, the element copper. Yes. And so these guys were not. This is not a case in which they are um, finding an ore and then using heat to extract the metal from that ore. Uh, and then casting the ore or the, casting the metal or whatever, these guys are actually finding seams of pure copper, nuggets and boulders of pure copper. And I mean, just that alone, the discovery of this, what looks like a rock, 
but it doesn't behave like a rock. It doesn't, you can't hit it and it breaks apart. It's you hit it and it deforms. That that's a really that's gotta be an interesting scenario where the first folks who discovered that copper figured out this is a material that behaves differently than anything we've used before. And then the ability to 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 actually use the, those intrinsic characteristics or qualities with the application of heat to to form spear points or knives or beads or or uh, items of adornment. That's a really interesting story, uh, far more interesting than the, the the speculations about where all the copper went. Well, and especially the artifacts that they would make. They they made things as as delicate as beads and and beaten sheets and they also made things as dense as some some tools and weapons out of it yeah, and axes and, and yeah. things for cutting cutting into wood absolutely yeah and and they they must <coughs> this is the part that i don't think i think this is the part that a lot of people have issues with is because again you're thinking oh they're stone age peoples there's no reason why they would mine for anything um, but they did. They they found these massive deposits of copper, and it is pretty pure copper. It is, like you said, it's like 99% pure, right. and it, it just exists. And they just had to dig into the ground to get it. And the, the copper that they found uh, was actually so plentiful that even after the prehistoric peoples were done mining with it, and they that those the the copper mining sites in the Michigan area were mined into contact sure by the native peoples and then they were taken over by white settlers who then really industrialized the copper uh the right. copper mining up there so i mean there was so much copper up there that it could actually transition between cultures and still there's copper there i right. mean some of these uh, the pits that are left behind by uh, the copper mining, some of them are so deep that I don't think they've been fully explored to their depth. Right. Which just tells you how far down these that we were. I mean, and considering these were being mined in like um, settler times, we're not talking machinery. Right. So right. this is all being done by hand, and it's been done. It's been done with you know, pretty primitive tools even back then. Yes. I mean, it's it's also. Just again, just so people understand that Native Americans um, exploited the resources that they had available to them and were were brilliant at doing that. Yeah, there actually are iron pre-Columbian native iron tools in North America. Mm -hmm. And again, this is not through smelting. It's not through the extraction of ore, of metal from an ore, but that Inuit people, Eskimos, actually found fragments of meteorites. And some of those meteorites yeah. are nickel iron meteorites. And they discovered that this was a material different from rock, that you could cut it apart, that you could heat it and beat it and make tools out of that iron. Mm -hmm. And so there's plenty of evidence up in the north of, again, Inuit people discovering this raw material, experimenting with it, essentially experimenting, figuring out that you couldn't use it like rock, but you could produce valuable, useful tools out of it, and is, that's exactly what they did. And that's the brilliance. That's the that's the most fascinating part about this. How native people were were in, effectively they were geologists and metallurgists, uh, practical geologists and practical metallurgists, and they found out where the good stuff was, and they 
and they exploited it. And that should not surprise anybody. And they didn't need help from anybody from outside of, of North America. They were able to do this on their own. Right. And, and, and along those lines, there's evidence of, of um, lead smelting down in southern Indiana and some of the, the prehistoric sites there. So, right? yeah. It's, and so, I mean, what is it? Galena or something? Is Galena lead based material or something like that? Galena was a clay. Oh, uh, we'll figure that one out. We'll have to look that one up. Don't. We'll look that one up. I don't want to get. I don't want to get hate mail from that one. Um, right. But yeah, so I think the term Stone Age is a little misleading for the obvious fact that you know we we say Stone Age because we're associating that most of their tools were made out of stone, which is in fact true. But there is ample evidence all across the nation for metalworking being part of uh, the Stone Age toolkit. Sure. Um, and so, and of course, there's absolutely no evidence showing any kind of European contact. Therefore, we, it is safe to assume that native right. peoples and, and prehistoric peoples figured this out on their own because they're humans and that's what we do. <laughs> What's also cool is how, although the, the source material is rather limited geographically, that, that, that copper was of was deemed of so much value that we find it at archaeological sites, Native American archaeological sites, all over North America. Yes. You know that mound builder sites in Ohio. It's fairly typical to find uh, what copper ear spools mm -hmm. and copper breastplates and various copper artifacts. That we're talking about now, you know, a few hundred miles away. But here in Connecticut, there are a handful of again prehistoric archaeological sites where we have found. Um, copper artifacts and there is no copper anywhere around here that I'm aware of and the assumption is that that stuff all came via trade long distance trade to be sure all the way from the American upper Midwest exactly um, and again there there was uh, you guys have evidence of gold working in your mounds am I crazy there is well I know that there's silver that in, in Ohio there is silver work in those mounds um, there are silver ear spools. I'm not sure about gold uh, in the Midwest. We can ask Brad Lepper about that. Yeah, but I should because I, I thought I saw something about beaten gold uh, uh, foil. And, and I'm just looking it up right now. The internet's a wonderful thing. Galena <laughs> is called lead glands. There you go. It's a natural mineral form of lead sulfide. And you look at pictures of it, and it is these just kick-ass cool metal crystals. Um, uh, of the uh, of lead, so it's extremely interesting stuff. And it had the Galena has been found, uh, I guess, simply because not I don't think it was useful necessarily in any utilitarian way, but it just looks so cool that native people um, collected these things, and it ends up in burials and in various ceremonial contexts. Well, in Southern Indiana, we've got evidence that they were smelting the lead down and making right? um, plum bobs out of it for fishing. Fishing weights in them oh, and uh, okay. that weights out of sure. it. Sure, but very you know, cool. Yeah, yeah, I think it's awesome. Um, so there's that. So we so we've got this situation in which okay we 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 we've established the fact that calling folks a Stone Age people is it's a it's a misnomer it's a misapplication of that term because yes. people obviously are using lots and lots of raw materials whatever is available in their area and so there's bone and stone and and antler and clay and right. 
and, and metal and whatever is available, whatever is useful. These folks are figuring out brilliant ways of using the, the, the characteristics or qualities of those materials to make things that are useful and or beautiful. And, and, and copper is this, this, obviously, there's a whole bunch of it in the upper Midwest. But then, so, but Sarah, where, so what's, what's the problem? What's, what's the controversy? What are people saying? What nasty things are people saying about all that, all that copper from uh, the upper Midwest? Well, there is, and this is where we get into the copper myth, the, uh, the copper culture myth, as I want to call it, because uh, there is a story that goes, that has been around for a while. Um, I'm not sure if I can trace it back to its roots, but it has most recently been brought back to life via the American Unearthed show. And the story is, is that there's all this copper in Michigan and there's just an astronomical number of pounds of copper that is missing from Michigan and that there is no other explanation for where all that copper went than peoples from Europe, European peoples found a way to get all the way to Michigan, mined all the copper, melted it down into ore ingots, and then sailed back to Europe. And that this copper that came from Michigan is actually the copper that fueled the Bronze Age in Europe. Right. So that's, this is, this is a very complicated story. It has a lot of holes in it, and but it has legs. This thing has been going on for quite this this particular myth has been going strong for a long time. Now you mentioned the Bronze Age, and again, I apologize if everybody is already aware of this, but copper is it's pretty good raw material, but it is essentially soft and brittle. Yes. So that if you try to use it the way you would use, say, an iron tool. Uh, copper, it, it, it wears out really quickly. It breaks very easily. What people in a number of places in the world figured out, and it's an interesting question, how did they figure this out? They figured out that if you added an impurity to the copper, to say if you're extracting the copper as an ore, so you're melting it down, you've got this liquid copper. If you, if you keep it pure, it's not as useful uh, compared to adding impurities to that ore uh, and making, that's what bronze is. Bronze is impure copper. Now, in the old world, um, copper and tin ordinarily was the, the, the alloy, the combination of metals that produced bronze, which is this extremely, compared to copper anyway, right. extremely hard, durable material. In South America, the folks before the Inca developed their own Bronze Age, a lot of that bronze, they didn't add tin to, they added arsenic to. Mm -hmm. But this, it's the same idea. And that's another really interesting discussion of how do people figure out that by making something impure, you make it stronger? And was it at first by accident that they were brewing up some copper and they said, oh, no, there's some junk in there. We're <laughs> going to have to. It's no good. And then when it, when it solidifies and cools, they go, wow, you know what's interesting? This is even harder than copper. And from there, maybe began experimenting. Again, these guys are practical chemists, practical metallurgists, and they're figuring out how to make a better raw material. So, yeah, there's a Bronze Age in the old world and that they need a lot of copper and they need a lot of tin 
or whatever else was being used at the time in various places. It's different as the impurity that made the copper harder. But now let's go back to this whole concept of missing copper. So are you, are you telling me, Sarah, that these folks have basically added up all the copper artifacts in museums and say, well, that's not enough to match all the holes in the ground in Michigan? Uh, no, but it's just about as ridiculous. Um, there was a mathematical formula that was proposed by some early proponents of this copper heist or this copper culture myth. And they basically, the way they came up with their formula was, is that they took a modern sample of one of the mines and they estimated how much copper ore there was in a, like a cubic foot. And by estimate, you mean pulled out of their ass, right? I'm going to be kind and say possibly because I, I've not seen any explanation of if they actually went and actually did a real sample as you would do if you were really trying to do this for real by using random sampling or um, using um, judgmental sampling. Right. Uh, but they, they estimated how much copper there was in like a square foot of soil. And then sure. they multiplied how much area or how much mass was missing from the holes. And again, I'm not positive they went and counted every holes because there right. are literally thousands of these copper mines all throughout Michigan. So I, I would say it would be, it's probably most likely they did not go count everyone. But so they guesstimated how much mass was missing. They then said, well, this much dirt and soil is missing. So there's X number of cubic feet and each cubic feet had this much copper in it. And then they also factored in something about uh, the stone tools that they assumed would have been used to get the copper out of the soil. Um, and then they multiplied that by a number that they kind of really did just make up. And they got this really large number. And it's like... Well, I think it's millions upon millions of pounds of copper that they're claiming. Like, Three, three to six million tons or something like is that, that? Right? and i'm just like is there even that much copper in the world but i could be wrong i don't know that much about copper i do know that their method of estimating this number has been called into question several times and even when they published the paper it was called into question because the number is just so unbelievable yeah, whenever you put together a formula like that, and scientists do this all the time, where we look at variables and we estimate what those variables could have been. So, for example, when um, when folks ask the question, well, could a small group of hunters entering the New World after 15,000 years ago, how could they have spread across the landscape so quickly? And we, we'll, we'll, we'll put together a formula that'll indicate, well, here's the, let's assume this as the birth rate. Let's assume this as the death rate. Let's assume this as the, their, the, the speed at which they move across the landscape. Let's assume this is their hunting success rate. And we, uh, we understand and recognize that the number that we come with up with at the very end is based on at least every one of those, the, the numbers we punch into those variables being correct by an order of magnitude. Um, 
And when we do that, we want to make absolutely sure that, say, that birth rate, that's reasonable for a small hunting society because we've got actual hard data from small hunting societies that this is their birth rate. And when we crunch in the mortality rate, we want to make sure those numbers we crunch in, we punch into that formula, reflect a, what, what a supportable range. That, yep, we've got lots of cultures, they all fall within that range. And when we present um, a variant where we try to plug in the variant for that variable hunting success rates, that those are all legitimate. So by the time we're done, we're pretty confident that the number we come up with at the end is at least ballpark, order of magnitude. The problem we have here is, and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to back down from saying that what they're doing is pulling these numbers out of their ass, their, their respective asses. We'll be back after our first break where we'll continue to discuss pulling numbers out of our asses. <laughs> okay, we've got Jordan from The Art of Charm back with us. Jordan, what have you had on The Art of Charm podcast lately? Actually, we had a lot of really interesting guests lately. I've had a bunch of entrepreneurs come on and talk about their mindsets and methodologies for getting ahead and kind of keeping the hustle going even when you don't feel like it. I had a guy come on and talk about self-defense, but not from like a how-to perspective, but more of the mindset of somebody who survives deadly attacks, which I thought was really interesting. And we had the founder of Pencils of Promise, which is a really large charity that builds schools in third world countries, come and talk about actually making your kind of your passion, for lack of a better word, happen in reality. He used to be a finance guy and he bounced and started this uber successful charity. So we talk about that process as well. And uh, we've actually had some people come on and talk about networking. One of the guys that talked about it was a military special forces guy who was in Afghanistan. And he's talking about how he built relationships with people in the Taliban and things like that to save lives. So if he can do it, we can do it for business and academic purposes, of course. Great. Yeah, I've heard a few of those already. And that Pencils for Promise one was uh, was incredibly inspiring. So what have you got coming up for the month of April? Uh, I've actually got a bunch of really talented guests coming in. I've got Gretchen Rubin. She's going to come up real soon where she's actually talking about happiness and how your brain works and how your brain measures happiness and things we can do day to day, actual habits to help make us quote unquote happier. I've got this guy, Nev Medora. He's a friend of mine, but he talks about crashing parties, not just for the sake of quote unquote crashing the party and getting into an exclusive event, but using that to sort of meet important people and that's a really useful skill set even if you don't plan on crashing parties he has some really good sort of life hacky ideas that go along with it and i've got simon sinek coming on to talk about leadership he actually helped develop the zappos culture and is a, a business thought leader of the highest caliber and last but not least i have olivia fox cabane author of the charisma myth she's actually going to be talking about the brain science involved in her new book that's coming out at like a year from now, but we get a sneak peek at that as well. And that's uh, that's all coming up in April. Awesome. Well, be sure to check out the Art of Charm podcast wherever you find podcasts when the show is over. You can find them also at www.artofcharm.com. And so we're back. Know. Okay, go ahead. So I'm going to say we're back to pulling numbers out of everybody's asses. There we go. But that's the problem. What you've just described, Sarah is let's let's give everybody the benefit of the doubt here. Everybody wants to understand the, this copper culture. It's an interesting hypothesis that, you know, how much copper was brought out of these mines? Where did it all end up? All legitimate questions. But the problem is we really don't have 
good ranges of values for these series of variables that we have to plug into our formula. Well, and so, I really feel like by I, I feel like we're creating a mystery where there isn't one. But go ahead and finish. I'm sorry. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just so you're right. Uh, you cannot look at a hole in the ground and come up with numbers like, well, we can figure out the volume of that hole in the ground, but how much of that volume was pure copper? How much, how much right. of that volume was just, well, they had to remove a lot of soil and a lot of rock to get to the seams of copper or to get to the nodules of copper. So it's not like that, it, it is not the case that there is a, a mountain range made of a 100% pure copper in Michigan, and we have these giant holes in the copper, and we add up all those spaces because we know those were all copper, and oh my God, this is how much copper was there, yet we don't have that much copper in all the archaeological sites in North America put together. That's not right. the case. Right, and I, I found the numbers here. They're they're attributed to uh, two gentlemen named Dreyer and Du Temple back in 1961. Right who came up with the numbers of 1 to 1.5 billion pounds of missing copper. That's a, that's a lot of copper. That's a lot of copper. And, that's a lot of pennies. And according to the website that I found this off of, um, which is a really great takedown of this whole crazy <coughs> thing, uh, done by Susan R. Martin, and she covered this in 1995. Uh, she is an archaeologist with the, uh, with the state of Michigan, I think think she teaches out of the university up there um so she knows a lot about this it's her, kind of her specialty she she does right. copper cult, actual copper culture there um but yeah one of the ways that they came up with this crazy number is that they they measured these hammers or they they estimated how much the hammers themselves would have weighed and that's how they came up with the number of pounds of copper. And I'm like, these two things are not related. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it really is. I, we, I mean, we, are, we want to be fair. We want to give this a fair hearing, but, but that's, that is pulling numbers out of your ass. I'm sorry. Um, what everybody should do also, if you're really interested in this, is Susan R. Martin has a terrific book on the copper culture, Wonderful Power, the story of ancient copper working in the Lake Superior Basin. And I have it someplace here in my, on my bookshelf. And it is a really nice um, exploration, not of the myth, but she talks about it in, in the book, but about her analysis of ancient copper working. And it's a brilliant piece of work. Yeah, it is. It's great. And we're going to link to it in the show notes so people Beautiful. can go read it because it's not only is it an excellent takedown, but it's written in clear terms right, yeah. that I think anyone can follow. And I think once you, once you read the breakdown, you're kind of, oh, okay. So here's my thing, though. Susan R. Martin, she, she, uh, she thoroughly debunked this in right. 1995. And that was after this had been being kicked around since the 60s. Um, and back then it was determined back then the, the prevailing idea was that the copper was taken by um either the celts or by the norse because we love the norse up north sure. apparently uh it's always the norse moon so but that was the culture that had come over and stolen all the copper right. back then and one of the reasons for this is uh, there was a glyph that was found carved into 
a random rock along the shore looks right. like a viking style ship with the the single mast and the curved bows right right um and i i think one of my most favorite quotes about it is that's not something that the that's not something the indians would have carved and i'm just like wow can we be slightly more racist with that statement so but it has morphed since then into an even more elaborate story right it's right. not just the norse though they are still sort of kind of related to it i'm not really sure how but it's it's now attributed to um well they, right now they ascribe it to the minoans the minoans thank you right. yes yeah and which is really funny because you'll read you'll read people saying well look at that ship that's clearly a viking ship if they support the viking hypothesis right and then the minoan hypothesis is look at that ship that's clearly a minoan ship mm -hmm. and minoan ships and viking ships look nothing alike well and frankly this glyph doesn't really look anything like either ship honestly i mean i guess you could i mean i'm there there'll be another link with the picture in it i guess you could say it's i would say it looks more viking than anything but i mean it it just looks like uh i mean if it could be a canoe as far as it's going you know and that's the problem with 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 rock art and it's it's true not just in fringe archaeology but throughout archaeology is that these things are hell to date yeah. it's not always very easy to figure out a date for these things and we have, we do it indirectly and so it is it is extremely common to find very very recent petroglyphs uh, side by side with very ancient ones the recent ones aren't necessarily fraudulent they're just a more recent culture that produced them and and there's you can't radiocarbon date a petroglyph um, you can sometimes get organic material from inside the glyph, and but it's 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 very difficult. So when you show me a one-off, all right, we have one petroglyph of a ship somehow associated with the copper culture, or at least in that area. Yeah, like, that's an interesting thing, but I can't date it, and I it's not part of it's. I can't put it in the context of a broader cultural perspective, a broader cultural practice, and so it's like. Well, it's interesting, but it really doesn't by itself prove terribly much. Well, and frankly, I don't see any reason to associate these glyphs because there's a bear glyph that I think it's associated with it sometimes uh -huh. because it's kind of the same style right. as the ship. Um, but there's no reason to associate these glyphs with the copper. They're not right. near any known copper sources. They're there's no reason to assume that they were carved by copper into the stone. I don't even know why you would do that. Um, and the, the, I, I think in my, I, the blog post that I did on this, I think I actually measured the distance from the supposed location of the petroglyphs to the location of the mines. Uh -huh. And the distance is like three to 400 miles Oh, apart and i'm like today that's not <laughs> that big of a deal because you can do that in a car but even in a that's, boat yeah. and you have to go across the uh, lake michigan to get there right and like this is there's no reason to associate these two they're not within a reasonable distance of each other to even uh, think that they are related yeah and do recognize that native americans when they encountered europeans with very different material cultures 
those things became incorporated into the art produced by Native American people. Uh, a couple, uh, last week I was in New Mexico in Canyon de Chelly, and you can find Native American rock art all over Canyon de Chelly depicting men on horseback, mm -hmm. depicting men with swords, depicting men wearing crucifixes, mm -hmm. because they encountered Spanish folks in the canyon um, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, and and used those images, depicted those those new things in their world in the art. Um, there are, and I can't, I'm familiar with the Canyon de Chelly art, but I have seen other instances in which in Native American art panels, petroglyph pictograph panels, the depiction of boats, of ships with sails. Right. Because these were these were exciting, interesting, cool things, and they they included it in their art. So this boat um, may be authentic. It may actually be a Native American depiction of a ship, but that ship could be in the 1600s or even the 1700s, and has, has nothing to do with copper. Right. I mean, and it could have been carved like you know 50 years ago, as opposed That's to true, yeah. you know, I mean sometime before the 60s another one of the things that um gets associated with the one of the reasons why they keep trying to say the the minoans or a european culture came over and carved out all of this copper and took it over there there's a couple reasons but another one i want to move on to is the um they call it the oxbow ingots that they found in a shipwreck right yeah, yeah. um yeah and the I cannot even pronounce it because they found a shipwreck in Europe that had these uh, forged copper ingots in it. It's a ship that went down and it, it is an association. And in within the time period that the bronze age would yeah. have been occurring in Europe. But like <laughs> I said, the ship is over there. Right. Somehow they have connected those ox shaped ingots with the copper culture here in America. And I'm, I was confused when this happened on the show because nothing Scott Walter said in this episode, none of it was new. All of this is rehashed from exactly. somewhere else. So it's, it's like none of these ideas were fresh or new for him. Um, well, my understanding, the claim is made that those ingots are in fact 99 point whatever percent pure copper right but they're smelted copper the the way that they got the ingots this is the thing that they try to say that the chemical the chemical makeup is the same because the copper in michigan is already 99 pure and these ingots were 99 pure but the problem is is the ingots have obviously gone through a smelting process which part of the reason you smelt metal is not just to melt it down but it's also to remove remove purities Right, exactly. So of course it's ninety nine percent pure. That's the yeah, whole so reason it's in the ingot throne. That's that. In other words, what the folks in Europe did with their cop with their copper ore is they did what nature did for the people in, up up in the American northern Midwest. What nature gave them ninety nine point x percent pure copper. That's what people were doing. Um, technologically removing all those impurities. So yeah, it's calling. Saying that because they're ninety-nine percent pure in both cases means nothing. Now, the more much more interesting analysis would be not the ninety-nine percent part, but the impurity part. Right. What 
what are what trace elements do you find in the copper, the natural native pure copper in Michigan? And what trace elements do you find in the copper that's found in Europe? And are they the same trace impurities that naturally in the in the copper? And are they in the same percentages, the same parts per million or parts per billion? Well, I've never seen anybody say, look at this, these two coppers one from Europe, one from the the New World, have exactly the same chemical signatures in terms of their impurities. Right. That's the kind of evidence you would need to connect copper from two different parts of the world. And even if you were able, it would be cool to see them compare the two, but even if you did get a very close match, it still isn't evidence that that copper came from here because it right. is possible to have a similar chemical makeup if it is found within the same matrix. Sure. Well, I mean, but basically what we're going to say about this is we can certainly prove they're not from the same source. That's if true. They're, if they're, um, they're, their trace element chemistry is entirely different. That is true. You know, when I was an undergrad, I actually helped out um, uh, Professor Phil Weigand, who was a Mesoamericanist. And this is a guy who spent his summers crawling around in caves in New Mexico and Nevada and California and finding raw turquoise deposits. And then we would take these things to the Brookhaven National Labs, which is out on Long Island, take samples of it, put it in a nuclear reactor to get the exact percentages of these tiny, tiny, tiny proportions of trace elements in those turquoise sources. And then we compared those, and this was, I was an undergraduate and I was drilling pieces of turquoise, but Phil over the years was able to take samples from actual turquoise artifacts from Western Mexico and can show conclusively, I, I think conclusively, that the source for those turquoise artifacts was the American Southwest, that there was trade between people in the Southwest because those are where the turquoise sources are, and by the, the percentages of the the, 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 raw, uh, of the the trace elements, you can trace this, you can actually physically trace these materials. But we always recognize that merely because two, a source and an artifact had very similar trace elements didn't prove that that, that that artifact came from that source, but if they had different, very different trace element compositions, you could show that they didn't come from that source. Right. And so, that's it's a great process of elimination. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But you also have to take into consideration distance. I mean, the distance that's being proposed for the copper from America to the copper in Europe is ridiculous. Um, first off, there's no way that they could have gotten it there. It, their boats were great and all that, but they weren't that great. Okay. Well, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say that this, this brings up Another, and I think maybe the most significant point of all, you know, Sarah and I both do dirt archaeology when, when, in our other lives when we're not talking <laughs> on the Internet. We, we're out there doing dirt archaeology. We know what archaeological sites look like. And we know what, for example, where I dig in New England, we have uh, we have components and sites that are Native American, that are pre-contact. And at those same sites, we see the appearance of Europeans coming into Connecticut in the 1600s and 1700s. Right. And we recognize the presence of these foreigners, these strangers. We recognize them because they have brought with them diagnostically different raw materials, ways of, of, of exploiting the, 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 the environment, 
uh, different ways of burying the dead, different ways of building their houses. And it's from a material perspective, if we didn't have any historical documentation at all, when we dig these sites here in New England, we know immediately, we say, hey, some new group has come in because out of nowhere, there are these different raw materials, these different techniques of accomplishing various tasks. And that brings us to uh, how many Minoans, sounds like the beginning of a joke, you know, right. how many Minoans <laughs> is like screwing a light bulb. How many Minoans would it take, or, or Vikings or Celts, to remove more than a billion pounds or whatever, however much copper it is? And would they not have to have com mining communities? Would they not be burying their dead dead? People are going to die during this process. It's oh, dangerous, yeah. right? Oh, are, very. Where are they? Are they are they hunting? Are they are they getting food? They must be. So where are we've got folks coming into New England in the 16 and 1700s, and they're mining for iron. We've got you don't have to read a book to know that there are strangers in the, in, the, in the middle of Connecticut mining iron because the archeological record shows this abundantly clearly. We have the mines, we have the tools used in the mines, we have the smelters, we have the kilns, all this stuff shows up, bam, almost right. overnight. Yeah. Well, how are these Minoans, are these Minoans, what are they doing? Are they, they using the Star Trek transporter to get to Michigan and then just beaming all this stuff up to the mothership? There's got, there have to be villages of Minoan miners. Where well, the hell are those? The story is, the story is with no evidence that they sailed ships across the ocean and then through the rivers and tributaries to get to Michigan. Cause you right. can, you can connect the two. Right. Um, and so that's how they got to Michigan um, but there's, there's no evidence of first contact. Like who are the people that discovered this route and why aren't they littered throughout this entire traveling path? Cause that's not an easy route to get through, especially right. with a, I mean, their, their boats were sophisticated for the time, but they're, they're no boats of today. Um, they're in a foreign land. They've got foreign stars. They're not going to know how to navigate exactly once they get here. Um, so, so where are the people that were the first explorers? Um, and where are the records when you get back to the Minoan cultures? I mean, they were record keepers. Where are the records of these explorations? Um, so, and then where, like you said, where are the mines? Where are the boats? Some, a boat somewhere will have sunk. It <coughs> happens. Modern boats sink. So you're going to lose some prehistoric boats. Where are they? And like you said, if they were smelting this gold, the sorry, if they were smelting the copper down into ingots to sail back with, where are the kilns? Those things show up in the ground big time. Right. Oh, they're they're impossible to miss, especially if you know what you're looking for. Um, and we will continue discussing the evidence that we would expect to see uh, after we get back from the second break. <laughs> a different story to the traditional lines of archaeology, the Anarchaeologist podcast seeks the stories and ideas that are often overlooked or not considered real archaeology. Video games, anarchism, and archaeology in the middle of hostile areas. Host Tristan doesn't search under the rocks, he destroys them. Available on iTunes every fortnight. Welcome back to the podcast, where we were talking about evidence that we would expect to see if there were a bunch of Minoans living in Michigan. Yeah, I mean, 
and ultimately that's the major question with so many of these claims of uh, a presence of old world people in the new world doing a lot of big stuff. They have to have infrastructure. Right. right? They're right, moving right, right. around millions of pounds. Where they have to build roads, they have to build facilities for processing these materials. These are this is classical archaeology, right? This is classically what archaeologists look for: those the physical evidence of people in an area, um, using using that area, exploiting that area, extracting resources from that area. That's what we do, but somehow magically. The Minoans left no evidence of that behind. And the bottom line here is that from an archaeological perspective, that simply is impossible. That's a deal breaker. Um, another thing, too, one of the reasons that we are very confident that there were not substantial populations of Europeans in the New World uh, beyond the Norse, which is a small number of them in one limited area, right. um, is that when Europeans did come to the New World in big numbers, the the the, um, the transmission of diseases that Native Americans had clearly never been exposed to before uh, caused massive uh, massive deaths. So yeah. that there are some estimates of 50, 70, 90 percent of some Native American populations die off very quickly because they're being exposed to things like like you know plague that they had never had any contact with. Right now we don't see that in up up in, in the, the upper Midwest. We don't see a cohort of Indians who, because, well, they already had been exposed to all these diseases when the Minoans were there, who have any kind of immunity to these European diseases. But that's another, I, I think, fatal flaw in the argument that, yeah, there, there are a bunch of Minoans here or a bunch of Vikings or Celts uh, walking around, I guess, wearing masks so they wouldn't spread disease. Right. And, well, yeah, it's... Another thing that they did when they would, one of the first things, what do men do when they go to new countries? Oh, do we have to discuss that? This is a, is this an R-rated, is this the R-rated podcast? I'm just saying it's a running theme in all of these stories. The first thing they do is they find themselves some friendly women and start having a good time. But when I was a kid in the 60s and 70s and we had a signs that said, make love, not war, the response to that was, look, make love and war. Yeah, that's That's what men do. But, but yeah, you're absolutely kinda. right. You're absolutely right that certainly one might expect that if there are a bunch of hardy Minoan seafarers uh, traipsing around in Michigan uh, and they're off hours, they're going to be commiserating with Native people that one might expect – that some of these these uh, these these conjoinings are going to result in, in in babies, and those babies are going to have genetic uh, a genetic history that includes both Native American and European, and all the genetic work done. Uh, the recent stuff is just amazing. Yeah. Uh, both in na modern Native Americans, but also in skeletal material, shows that that just didn't happen. Yeah, and yeah, all of the credible genetic uh, testing that has been done. Uh, shows absolutely no commingling at that time, um, which I think is significant. And the problem with the, I mean, the genetics, they're a little harder to explain because it is kind of a newer thing. And they're, it's, you can't just read the reports. I, I even have a hard time reading the reports and understanding what's being said a lot of times. Um, so I, I know that a lot of people do get a hold of those and they read them and they're like, oh, this says that there's 2% of this particular DNA and that's blah, 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 blah. And the, the mythical 
what is it, the X genome or something? Right. Well, the the, the it's the X haplotype, mitochondrial yeah. haplotype. And like but people don't even a, know what they're talking about when they say that. Well, so. the misunderstanding there is that there are multiple versions of X. Yes. The X that shows up among Native Americans is not the version of X at all that shows up in some populations, say, in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Right. Uh, they, they are very different. Unfortunately, they've been given the same letter designation, but they are subgroups that are not closely related. And I'm sure there's some reason within the genetic community that they did that. And someday I might be able to find an expert that can explain that on the show, which would be awesome. But until then, just you kind of have to go with that. I, so I, I, When we get off, I'll have a, I have a suggestion for a person who would be the perfect person to discuss uh, the Native American genetics. Absolutely. I like this idea. So a lot of times people will say that there is some evidence aside from the petroglyphs. Um, like I said, Walter threw this up in his show. And that's the not quite so infamous Newberry tablet. Um, it's a not as well known artifact uh, that exists apparently still. Right. Um, I had a lot of I had a hard time researching it just because there doesn't really appear to be too much information out there, and that includes even produced by the museum in which it resides. Uh, but the claim is is that this Newberry tablet actually depicts um, ancient cryptic characters on it. And if you go to, just to hype my blog once again, uh, if you go to the blog post that is associated with this topic, <laughs> there is a very clear picture of it there that I was able to get from a screenshot. Right, right, right. Um, so you can actually physically see the pictures, uh, the pictoglyphs. And it's there's so many claims made about who made that writing. And that's a first assuming that the stone is real, which there's no reason whatsoever to believe that the Newberry tablet is anything other than a hoax and a fairly recent one at that. Uh, uh, but the, the tablet's writing has been associated with, I think, three different cultures, two of which their the writing system has never been translated it like it's it's untranslatable as of modern time right now we don't we don't know how it translates out right. um but the infamous uh dr barry fell of course claims that he was able to translate it and he uh he trans he's he identified it as minoan letter a or mino i cannot talk minoan thank you minoan linear a right which is untranslated it has never been translated. Just pretty damn convenient. But I mean, understand but, that. But Barry Fell was able to translate it. Well, there is there is a long and ignoble history of these inscribed tablets found throughout North America, usually dating to the sometime in the 19th century. Right. And we talked about that in the case of yes. the, the the newer Coley stones. But there, there's the Grave Creek tablet in, what is it, West Virginia. There's the Bat Creek Stone in Tennessee. There's the, the Los Lunas uh, uh, Decalog Stone in New Mexico. So these things are spread out all over the place. And um, there was a cottage industry of the production of strange scripts placed in mounds, placed in archaeological context to make it look like... Uh, Ancient foreign people came to the New World, uh, and it's you know it it's the one of the it, what you just described 
is kind of typical. That if it's written in a language that uh, is a little bit unclear, you, everybody who translates it claims it's of a different language and the translations are entirely different. Right. Well, I think that's that's a probably a pretty good guess, a pretty good hint that there's a significant problem when people who claim that, that they have these linguistic skills cannot agree on what language it is or what it says. It's not really of that much value to us. But and then unlike the the Newberry Stones, um, the Newark, sorry, the Newark Holy Stones, right. where those are actually right. written in Hebrew, it's just the... And translatable, right. And translatable. This... The three languages that it is usually associated with is Crypto-Minoan, um, Minoan Linear A, and um, Hittite Cuneiform. Which is entirely, uh, no connection to Minoan language. Exactly, whatsoever. exactly. Uh, they're not, they're not really, they're not even cousin languages, because I looked this up. Um, they're not related at all. I think two of them, one of them is um, a parent of the other one. I think the two Minoans are, one of them is the parent of the other. But if you look at all three of those, because we have examples of that writing, which is how we have decided that that's what these are called. And you compare those to the pictographs that are on the Newberry tablet. They don't look anything alike. Right. Sure, sure. So, so the, the Newberry tablet is literally gibberish that is trying to be passed off as an ancient cryptic language that people have claimed that they have translated out. And two of these are untranslatable languages. Yeah, it's convenient. I, you know, I, I was just looking at it, Sarah. I can translate it. It says, <laughs> this, this copper, it's really sweet. It's the bomb. Let's send some home. It's clear that's what it says. Oddly enough, that's... That's what uh, Walter wants to say that that stone says. He says Whoa. that that stone was placed as a guidepost so that people could find their way from that tablet to the islands so that they could mine the copper there, load it up on their magical ships of indestructibility, and teleport it back to the Bronze Age, which was going on over in Europe. Wow. You know what? You know what, though? I mean, there's there's another possibility here, which is that it's extraterrestrial aliens. Uh, they needed the copper for their, you know, for their their, their USB drives with all their <laughs> navigational stuff. And so they came to Michigan. They mined the copper. There, there's a there's a good episode for Giorgio there just there alone. I'm sure if I dig deep enough, I can find an alien claim to this. Yeah. So the last but, thing I wanted to talk about, because I like to harp on this, um, the, one of the last bits of evidence that people like to throw out there claiming that there were white people here digging up the copper and taking it back to Europe is that they claim that there are Indian myths that talk about fair-haired men in them. Um, I personally cannot find these myths because they are the, – the claim of them is so ambiguous it's impossible to know what right. people are talking about. But you can find documented Ojibwa myths that do document copper culture within their culture going uh -huh. far back before contact um, 
with Europeans during settlement times. Right. Well, you know, you know, Sarah, as well as I do, that the, um, the, the claim that there are Native American stories of visitations by white-skinned people is a trope in alternative archaeology. It's, right. it's almost, it's a cliche. Yes. Virtually every one of these folks will claim, well, they have stories of, and, and usually the white people are gods or are perceived to have godlike powers. Right. The problem is when you go into this in more detail, you, it's very rarely do you get the, these stories directly from Native Americans. It's always through a filter, like a, a priest who says, well, I was speaking to the Indians and they talked about their God being a white man from across the sea. Well, of course, those those are very convenient stories to tell about uh, Native Americans because it sort of justifies the fact that, well, we're, we're white people and we have all, we have gunpowder and we have weapons. And so we can claim to these Indians, we are those gods that you guys are talking about. Right. And it becomes this, this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Um, Though the claims that there are lots and lots of stories among Native Americans of white-skinned gods or white-skinned people um, are in almost every case. I, I don't know of a single case where it can be proven definitively that those stories are Aboriginal, that they're not post-contact and that were not things that were being fed to, to Native Americans by white interlopers, white invaders, and white oppressors, for that matter. Right. It, it was a way of reorganizing an oral history so that it would benefit them uh, more than it would hinder them. Oh, yeah. And that's, and that's really typical if, the, if, if many, many Native Americans, many American Indians live in areas where there are rivers that flood. And so they may have a story about a flood. Well, so many of the Spanish clerics then took that, ran with that, and said, oh, you are remembering the great universal flood from the Bible. So you're part of that story. And then years later, I, I, I do a, an assignment in class where kids um, recover origin stories from various Native American groups. And I tell them, you got to be really careful, because when they start talking about, well, there was a man and a woman in a garden, and then the whole world was covered in water, and then one ship saved a handful of people, that... It, that that none of those stories can be traced back before the appearance of missionaries retelling that story. So that it's it's this again. It's these are not Aboriginal stories. These are not uh, pro, uh, stories from uh, the, a time before Europeans got there. These are stories that are incorporating what Europeans are telling Native Americans. Right. All right. So we're really close to running out of time. And I think we've done an excellent job of covering a lot of material this episode. Yeah, it's, for a cool, us. it's a cool story. And I think everybody should understand the fact that a hypothesis like, wow, maybe some of the copper, maybe a lot of the copper from the United States ended up in Europe prehistorically. It's a perfectly valid hypothesis. It's an interesting hypothesis. The problem is every hypothesis requires validation, requires testing. And when we look for evidence of the of of Minoans or or whoever in Michigan prehistorically collecting copper, that evidence is not forthcoming. There is no evidence. What we're hearing is just so stories with a bunch of numbers kind of drawn out of the air, put in a formula, 
that does not constitute proof in archaeology. Archaeology is all about physical evidence. That's the gold standard. Right. You don't have if you don't have Minoan sites, you don't have Minoans. Right. Right. No, and and I think that you know, as usual, we're we're looking too far away for answers that are right in front of us. I mean, we've got uh, oral tradition with the Ojibwa talking about right. the copper culture. We have evidence of native uh, artifacts that are made out of copper. So there's, there's, there are, we've got trade within uh, native trade lines showing the copper getting across the country. There's no reason to even think that there was European contact because there are no European artifacts mixed in with any of these trades. Like you said, there's no, um, there's no villages, there's no kilns, there's no sunk ships, there's no documentation back over in Europe that this ever happened. So unless these people were like SEAL Team 6 from the Minoans, right, right, right. you know, this never happened. And there's, there's no reason not to attribute it to the people who actually did all of this which were the prehistoric and the native peoples yeah. that lived in the area. And everybody should understand that th this level of evidence that we're requiring for this hypothesis is exactly the same level of evidence we would re we would require yes. or expect for any other hypothesis, not one related to European exploring or exploiting of the new world. If you're telling me that somebody was here, this is the kind of evidence we must find in order to support that claim. And without that evidence, you got an interesting hypothesis, but you sure as hell don't have um, an accepted. You don't have a, you don't have a, a scenario that's going to be accepted by archaeologists or historians. Yep. Well, Ken, thank you very much. Oh, it was great fun once again, Sarah, and I look forward to the next podcast. Me too. See you in two weeks. You bet. We don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Ranger trials as one will call. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Rage trials as one will call. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.